My name is Humble Gray, and I am a Mississippi farmer. I've been pondering the subject of slavery, or at least as it related to old Farmer Gray's ancestors. See, my great-great-great-granddaddy, Jebediah Gray, goes the tale, owned upwards of 40 slaves, which he used to work this very patch of land back in the early to mid-19th century, at a time when our grounds stretched some 400 acres beyond what they do now. And the reason the topic has been so much on my mind of late is because of an event not too long ago in Prospect Hill, Mississippi. Seems the descendants of slaves and those of their owners had a get-together. A right friendly one, too, from the sound of it. The white folk got to say, sorry about that, and the black folk got to say, that's okay, just don't do it again and everything was apparently copacetic thereafter. Shows what a hundred and fifty years, give or take, will do, I guess. And I began to wonder what would happen if your farmer here met up with the kin of Jebediah's slaves. What would yours truly say to the ancestors of those compelled to labor at Gray Farm? Well, a couple of thoughts have occurred to me. First, I might say... Now that we're all assembled in one room, any of you have an idea where the money went? Oh, great-great-great-granddaddy must have been mighty rich to own all those slaves, but none of the greys in living memory have been affluent. Not affluent at all. Did maybe some of your great-great-greats stick a hand in the till while they were working our land? Oh, don't worry, I I wouldn't expect you to pay it back. I mean, not unless he felt guilty and wanted to. And once we'd settled that question to the best of our abilities, we'd get down to the crux of the matter, i.e. the downside of slavery. See, it seems Jebediah ruled with an iron hand, if family lore is to be believed. The whip, the chain, the brand, and various other admittedly excessive disciplinary measures were said to have been employed right here on these grounds. Well, sir, were I surrounded by the progeny of those toiling captives, I'd express remorse, and sincerely, too, with regard to such over-the-top behavior by my ancestral sundowner. But, of course, I'd remind them that a century and a half ago, recalcitrance was met with harsher castigation than it is customary in modern times. Then I'd have them all gather round as I used to loud about the life their forebears might have encountered had I, the current Farmer Gray, lived mid-nineteenth century and been myself a slave master. For I've sometimes wished, I'd tell them, that I could have had slaves. That's right, that I could have owned dozens of your ancestors. But only so I could be extra nice to them. Yes, sir, extra nice. Why, 
Many's the time I've built castles in the air, thinking about the farm circa 1860 under this dedicated agrarian. No grim portrait to conjure there, for I'd have ruled that 19th century homestead with a velvet glove and good fellowship between master and slave. I'd preponderate not with admonishment, but with praise, apportioning kudos to those who picked the most cotton, and even setting up little contests between the field hands, proffering extra rations to whomever had gathered the highest poundage for the day. A friendly arm round the shoulder, instead of a stinging whip, would dissuade my servants from contumacy, along with the particularization that fractious deportment on Gray Farm serves only to break the good master's heart. And here's the kicker. When I sensed that one of the slaves was getting a mite antsy, maybe even contemplating a run for it north, here's what I'd do. I wouldn't chain him. I wouldn't whoop him. No. What I'd do is... I'd free him. That's right, folks. I'd say, for instance, I'd say, Ephraim, it's come to my attention that you no longer wish to be individuated as property. Well, if that's the case, then consider yourself, slave Ephraim, to be erstwhile slave Ephraim. That's right. You're a free man. And Ephraim would stare wide-eyed at me with a mixture of wonderment and confusion, for never did he expect a slave master so accommodating to his emancipatory aspirations. Thank you, slave master. I mean, former slave master, he'd weep in humble gratitude. Never mind thank you, I'd say, uncomfortable with such an appreciative display. Just get back to work. Or don't. It's up to you, what with you being free at all. And you know what? I'll bet he would go back to work, at no charge, being suffused with thanksgiving and all for my beneficent gesture. And that's not all. Sometimes I'd free a slave just because it was a special occasion, like a happy birthday, Lucinda. I couldn't think of what present to get you, so guess what? I'm giving you your freedom and many happy returns of the day. Oh, goodness, Slave Master Gray, she'd cry. You have rendered the greatest benefaction upon me. Taint nothing, I'd say, with characteristic humility. Now back to the kitchen with you. Or go to college, whatever you want to do. You are, after all, free. And you know what? Just like Ephraim, I'll bet she'd go back to that kitchen work. No charge. So beloved would she hold Farmer Gray in her heart. Why, so esteemed would I be among those working my land that when the history books were written on antebellum days, entire passages would be devoted to me, declaiming that there once was a slave owner who was a true joy to be around. Name was Farmer Gray, and according to his slaves, they just couldn't get enough of him. Most of them even stuck around after the war between the states and continued in their labors for no pay at all, so much did they relish his company. Well, dear listeners, I can only imagine what effect such reveries would have on Bondman's progeniture. I've no doubt that they'd have to restrain themselves for dignity's sake from clapping me on the back and pumping my hand in recognition of my imagined humanitarianism toward their antecessors. If we had to descend from the slaves of a brutal master, they'd say, we're tickled to death it was your great-great-great-granddaddy. 
and I'd just look down at my shoes and say, oh, shucks, and the like, for I'm nothing if not reserved and self-effacing. Then we'd all head off to Zare County for lunch at Shoney's, and I'd bet anything that so grateful would my new friends be, R.E., my would-be dominion, they'd pay the whole bill, my country fried steak included. Yes, sir. Country fried steak included. I am not a vain fellow, but I do believe it biblically valid to take pride in one's appearance. Thus, I found myself last Saturday at Zeb's barber shop for my bi-weekly trim. He does a business, does Zeb, and even added an assistant to the payroll, the female barber Mel, nay, Melissa, of whom you were apprised in a previous broadcast. Well, sir, on this particular morning, the tonsorial patrons included a tiny lad aged three years or thereabouts, and he was, dear listeners, not looking forward to his encounter with the razor. He was, in fact, caterwauling something fierce in anticipation of the ordeal, and Papa's tender ministrations in no way assuaged him. So it was that I resolved to alleviate the tot's anxiety through pure reason. Now then, lad, says I to the squalling boy in the barber's chair, what manner of conduct is this? Are you unaware of what might befall you were you not to submit to this calvary? Why, son, your hair would reach an inordinate length, comparable to that of a hippie, or a liberal, or a communist. And you don't aspire to be a hippie, a liberal, or a communist, do you? The lad sniffled and shook his head. No, he said in a quavering voice. I did not think so, says I, for you look to be of good character and patriotic aspect. I then turned to Zeb. Make that cut extra short, says I, for this child should manifest the bearing of a true American boy. Ah, uh, I don't want his hair too short, says the tyke's daddy. Oh, says I, well, friend, as you're the papa, that's entirely up to you. And then I sat back down, but not before whispering in Zeb's ear, extra short. Boy left there looking like a tiny marine. <laughs> yes, sir. I was patronizing the local grocery, Clemmer's Value Food, the other day, as I am wont to do when the icebox demonstrates a high, empty-to-surfeited-shelf-space ratio. And who should drive up right after me but Connor Reese, a stalwart of the improved order of Heptasoft's Lodge 23 and a respected member of First Baptist. In other words, the very last man you'd expect to transgress, even inadvertently, against the American way of life. But up he drives in a brand new sedan. A brand new sedan that is not, how to put this delicately, not of U.S. make. That's right, dear listeners, old Steady Connor, an esteemed resident of our close-knit hamlet, pulls up to the entrance in a charcoal gray four-door with a capital H fastened to the grill. To the uninitiated, that's H for Honda, i.e. 
a Japanese brand model Civic. Ironic, too, that it should be called Civic, when in reality one has a civic duty to buy American. Double irony that another popular model is called the Accord, when we should all be in accord that U.S. cars are the ones to purchase. Connor, says I, that's a funny-looking Buick you're driving, feigning ignorance of its foreign origins. Buick heck, says Connor, that there Farmer Gray is a Honda. Oh, says I, all counterfeit naivete, and which American company produces such a vehicle, for I cannot place the brand among the giants of Detroit. Oh, it's not American, says Connor, his mean betraying not an ounce of shame. It's a Japanese vehicle. I see, says I, as if the light had just begun to dawn. I see. And what, friend Connor, possessed you to eschew ownership of one of our fine American conveyances for this foreign interloper? Well now, says Connor, taking apparent umbrage at my innocent query, I don't know that I'd employ the term interloper, for Honda is a respected manufacturer, and their automobiles among the world's most preferable. Preferred over General Motors, says I? Preferred over Ford? Most reliable in the world, says Connor, brash as a Kentucky seed merchant. Well, believe me, dear listeners, it took all of my considerable determination to choke back the bile that rose against such unpatriotic sentiments. But I have known Connor for many years and aspired not to admonish, but to reason. So I said, Brother Connor, if you do indeed prefer autos nascent of Japan over those of the nation from which you draw sucker, perhaps... Just perhaps, it is because you do not drive like an American. From whence, asks Connor, did you derive that supposition, Farmer Gray? Well, friend Connor, says I, in America we drive the car. The car does not drive us. And to own an American automobile is to test one's mettle against adversity. A foreign car that starts with every turn of the key incites the deadly sin of sloth and the spiritual degradation of entitlement. An American vehicle encourages personal industry. To keep it running, one must break out the floor jack or get under the hood, gap the spark plugs, pressurize the cooling, check the bearings, clean the throttle body, refinish the cylinder heads, flush the brake, and replace the brake drum, the ignition coil, the radiator hose, the engine mount, etc., etc., etc. And then a friend comes by and espies your labors. Say, Connor, says he, can I lend a hand? Thus a sense of community is fostered, and the vows of matrimony, too, as one's better half emerges with a tray of cold lemonade. Refreshment, boys, says she, and you are reminded why this fine lady is the love of your life. That, Connor, is why this country is all the stronger for its American-made vehicles and all the weaker for its foreign imports. Well, the man scratched his chin in deliberation of my thesis. I believe, Farmer Gray, says he, that you have nominated a valid postulation. 
I am therefore of a mind to sell my Asian carriage and purchase one of domestic construct. And it would be a privilege, says I, to assist in the inevitable repairs. Lemonade included, says he. God bless Detroit. Yes, sir. Play me out, Zeke. (laughs) 